you have your Bible, if you would turn to the last two verses of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. This is our 30th week and our final week working through this great the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever preached. And now we see the response. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So far, the reading of God's Word. They were amazed. Actually, the word translated there is usually translated, they were astonished. And sometimes the word is used for being stunned, like you had a slap in the face, and you were stunned. astonishment. You know, C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Great Divorce, he says that there's not enough astonishment in our day. Why is that? He says, because our hearts are so dull. We've been enchanted. In his book, The Weight of Glory, he says, we need to be awakened from the evil enchantment of worldliness which dulls our hearts. When was the last time you were astonished so that you were just quiet? I remember years ago sitting in a movie theater and I watched the movie Schindler's List. It's an amazing film by Steven Spielberg about the Holocaust, demonstrating the worst of humanity and demonstrating some of the best of humankind. And the cinematography was striking, do you remember, in black and white except for the little girl in the red coat? And the music was breathtaking and swelling, and the story was gripping, and when the movie was over, Nobody moved. Some people were sobbing quietly. And I said to myself, there's so much to think about. And I don't know, but I suspect at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds just sat there. As Jesus was done. So much to think about. And they were astonished. Astonished at two things. If you've been with us through our study of the Sermon on the Mount, you and I should be astonished at what he says and who he is. What has it been like for you and what has it been like for me these past 30 weeks to encounter 
these words of Jesus where he begins talking about the Christian character in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit and the merciful. And he talks about our character. And then he speaks of our influence in the world. You are salt and light in the world. You're Christian, the Christian's influence. Then he talks about, as, as he goes on, he speaks about your righteousness when it comes to anger and lust. And he, ta- he exposes the sinful dynamics of our hearts. And then he says, your righteousness has to surpass the scribes and the Pharisees. And he brings me up short. And then he calls me to holiness. It's jaw-dropping. And he shows me how much I I need God, and then he teaches me to pray. And he gives us the Lord's Prayer, this magnificent prayer. And he says, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the pagans. Here's how you need to pray. And then he says, by the way, I also know how much you worry. Because we all worry. And he says, consider the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. And as the Father takes care of them, he, he's going to take care of you. And then he says, and what about when your brother sins? And your husband sins and your wife sins and your children sin. What do you do then? And he says, I'll tell you what you do. You take the log out of your own eye first. You humble yourself. And then after you deal with your own heart, now you can see clearly to deal with your brother or your sister or your father or your child. And by the way, he says, there are false prophets out there. There are many other people claiming to be the Messiah, but don't be fooled. Instead, build your house, not on shifting sand, but build your house on the rock. And when he is finally done... They are astonished. All the commentaries make this point so beautifully. They say that when Jesus was speaking, he was not like the Old Testament prophets. What did the Old Testament prophets do? The Old Testament prophets, they heard from God, and then they said to the people, Thus saith the Lord. But this was different. Because four, five, six times, Jesus doesn't say, Thus saith the Lord. He says, But I say to you, This is different. This is Jesus speaking. I, with authority, say to you, Are you listening? There's that episode in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, where Philip is trying to figure out What is going on with Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And in in the middle of that conversation, Jesus says, Philip, the words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say I am in the Father and the Father is in me. It is no longer... Thus saith the Lord, it is now I say to you, are you listening to Jesus Christ? He speaks with authority. And all who hear him are astonished. Listen, we, we all hear voices. 
I'm serious. We all listen to voices. If you're here today and you say, nobody tells me what to do. Nobody tells me how to think. I'm my own person. Don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. The voices of your parents, the voices of your teachers, the voices of talk radio, the hilarious comedians who capture your attention, the voices, they're all there. Who are you listening to? In John 7, 46, we read, No one ever spoke like this man, Jesus Christ. That's been the testimony of every generation for 2,000 years. There's no one who's ever spoke like Jesus. Even when he was a boy at the temple. Do you remember what happened? Even when he was a boy at the temple, Jesus is talking to the teachers and the scribes, and, and it says all who heard him were amazed. There's that word again. They were amazed at his answers. And I just have been thinking about this a lot. The, the, why were they astonished at his teaching? And why, what makes a teacher a great teacher? Well, one thing is that people remember what you say if you're a great teacher. It's memorable. And for 2,000 years... Civilization has drawn on the Sermon on the Mount. And you can't read any great literature without some allusion to it. And the church of Jesus has heard uh, his words gripping us. We will never forget these words of Jesus. And another thing that makes a teacher a good teacher is that a good teacher understands his students. Isn't that true? A good teacher knows what's going on inside the minds, inside the heart of his students. And in this magnificent passage, Jesus shows us that he understands our anxieties. He's so empathetic and sympathetic to his people. You've, you've got to listen to Jesus and say, this guy, he gets me. And he really does. He understands you. And he also knows his students' sin patterns. He knows where they are rebellious. And he knows, not just on the surface, but down at the root, what's going on in the lusts of their life, in the hatreds and angers that boil up. He knows. And he speaks right to it. A good teacher understands his students. And, of course, a good teacher understands his subject matter. And who understands the Scriptures better than Jesus? Who knew the Bible better than Jesus? Even when he was a boy, he amazed the seminary professors with his answers. A good teacher knows his subject matter, and so Jesus was second to none as he interacted with the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and what makes a great teacher, a, a, a good teacher great, is that he's able to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. That's what Martin Luther said about Jesus. A, a good teacher can disturb the comfortable. Jesus knew how to do that, didn't he? He rattled the cages of the scribes and the Pharisees. He scandalized the Jews who wanted to reject him. And yet, children, little children, understood him and loved him. 
and he comforted the broken, the brokenhearted. And at the end of his life, Jesus showed he was a great teacher because a great teacher knows how to answer his critics. And by the time at the end of the Gospels, and you see they are resolute in their commitment to kill Jesus, we come even at the end of his ministry, and in Matthew 22, a few chapters later in the Gospel of Matthew, he powerfully shuts the mouths of his adversaries, and we read, no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So forcefully, Jesus is saying to you, I tell you the truth. North Shore Community Church, will we hear him? Are we agreed as a church family that we want to hear Him? In every sermon that we preach, will we preach Christ? In every Sunday school class, moms and dads, don't you want your children to hear Jesus? That every Sunday school teacher is prepared, diligently prepared to present Christ and His Word to the teenagers and youth group, don't you want to meet Jesus and hear Jesus? Come on out. Come on out. Come on out to hear Jesus. Every home fellowship meeting, week after week after week, don't your leaders want you to hear Jesus? In the women's Bible study, in the men's fellowship, don't they want you to hear Jesus? The worship team that gathers us and that leads us in praise, what do they want? They don't want the spotlight on them. They want you to hear Jesus. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Paul says. And when everybody else was abandoning Christ and like rats jumping off the ship in John chapter 6, Jesus turns to Peter. And he says, Peter, will you also go away? And do you remember what Peter responded? I love this. John 6, 66. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Can you say that? I hope you can. I hope you do. And that the hunger of your heart is to hear the word of Christ and be astonished and be gripped and changed. But point number two, not only are they astonished by what he says as they hear this Sermon on the Mount, but also they are astonished at who he is. And this, I think, is really interesting. Some of you who went to college and you studied the different philosophers and thinkers you know that an awful lot in the liberal academy of thinkers have respect for the Sermon on the Mount. And you hear things like this, uh, Thomas Jefferson, Mahatma Gandhi. They would say, well, you know, all this mirac miracle stuff, all this deity of Christ stuff, I'm not all that interested in that. But, you know, I really do respect 
the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Gandhi says, Thomas Jefferson says. And in his commentary uh, at the end of his book, John Stott will not let them get away with it. And Stott says, if they're paying attention to the Sermon on the Mount, they cannot just have the teaching of Jesus because it is so pregnant with the person of Jesus. You just can't have it. We won't let them have it. He reveals himself in, in small but powerful ways. He reveals himself as the Christ, as the Lord, as the judge, as the Son of God. And I've been just spending this week chewing on these phrases. And it's so easy to pass over them because they're very brief. But if you get these little phrases, it's like looking at the sun and seeing that it is light. It's like tasting honey and experiencing that it is so sweet. You see, six times and many other times, Jesus will use this phrase six times in this sermon and other times he says, I have come. What's with that? Does he just mean I, sh I just happened to show up? That's not what he's talking about. But when Jesus says things like, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I have come that they might be fulfilled, what's he referring to? When he says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth but a sword, what's he talking about? He has come because he is the fulfillment of the longing of the ages, of the prophecies of the Old Testament that are looking forward to one who would come. Who was to come? We've already seen it in the service, right? The prophet greater than Moses is to come, and he has come. The king, more splendid than Solomon, is supposed to come. <laughs> and he has come. And the priest, greater than Melchizedek, has come. He is the Messiah, or as we call him, the Christ. Now, some of you think you hear the name Jesus Christ, and that's like Stephen Smith, right? Stephen's his first name, Smith is his last name. Jesus is his first name, Christ is his last name, right? Wrong. His last name was Bar-Joseph, son of Joseph, Jesus, Bar-Joseph, or Jesus of Nazareth. But Christ means Messiah. And who is the Messiah? He is the one to come. Time and again, Jesus reveals, I am the one. The desire of nations is here. The longing of the ages is here. And Christmas, Christmas just around the corner, tells us of the one who was outside of space and time and invaded our universe, invaded our planet. I have come, he says. And they're astonished. And the, the, this other word that he allows them to use of him is the word Lord. Lord, Lord, they say to him. And he doesn't say, well, don't call me that. He accepts that. What is he accepting there? Jesus accepts this title of Lord, and that means that he is the king. He is the boss. He's the leader. He's the one to be obeyed. And last week we talked at length about this. 
how much none of us wants to go to hell, right? Nobody here wants to go to hell. We want a Savior to forgive us of our sins. We want to go to heaven. That's a wonderful thing. Jesus is our Savior. But if you put it negatively, you do have to say you can't have Jesus as Savior unless you will also have him as Lord. But why would you want to have him as Savior and not have him as Lord? Because we also studied this last week in, the, in that first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Remember that we encourage everybody to, to memorize that because he redeemed you, because his blood was shed for you, it's you, you say, you remember the words? Remember the words. I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. And at the end, therefore, because I belong to him, I am wholeheartedly ready and willing from now on to live for him. Lord, yes, he is the Messiah. He is the Lord. And then third, you come to phrases like this. Many will say to me on that day, and I will say to them, or I will tell them plainly, or I will declare unto them. What day is he talking about? The judgment day. He's talking about the judgment day. So get this picture. A carpenter, a working man, salt of the earth, sitting on a hill on a mountainside. And he says, One day, all the nations of the earth, all the peoples that lived will appear before me, and I will judge them. No wonder they were astonished. Are you astonished? If you're not astonished, I want to tell you, there is a day coming when you will be astonished. What is that day? That is the judgment day. And on the judgment day, there will be a lot of bad astonishment and a lot of good astonishment, according to the Sermon on the Mount. Bad astonishment? Well, that's for those people who talk the talk. Lord, Lord, did we not do miracles in your name and cast out demons and preach for you? And, and he says to them, Be gone from me, I never knew you. Ah. Astonished. But then there's going to be the good kind of astonishment. The kind of astonishment that comes from those whose sins have been forgiven, who have been united to Christ in his death, in his resurrection. Those who believed in him and who wanted in their own fumbling way to do the will of the Father in heaven, who had that personal relationship with him, and he says to them, welcome, enter into the joy of your master. And suddenly you see how much, how much he forgave you. How enormous was the debt that you owed for your rebellion. And he paid it all. He paid it all for you. And the banquet 
is set before you. And Jesus puts his arm around you and says, come to my table, come to my banquet table and feed now. And you inhale the air of heaven. The Holy Spirit, the air of heaven is into your lungs. And you are glorified and transformed as you see his face, astonished. Wow. On that day. You see, you can't, Mahatma Gandhi, you can't, Thomas Jefferson, just have the teaching from this one. Because then Jesus says things like this. He says, only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And I just point out to you the words, my Father. And this is subtle. But this is so important. It is, it is true that when he taught us to pray, he taught his disciples to say, our Father. But Jesus never talked, anywhere that I recall in the Gospels, Jesus never talked about me and us using the term our Father. When Jesus referred to God, he spoke of at him as my Father. in a way that was personal and intimate. And I don't know, but I have to think, as they got up and walked away from the Sermon on the Mount, one had to elbow the other and say, did you catch that when Jesus talked about, when he said, my father? What do you think he meant? Because the rest of the New Testament tells us of the deity of Jesus Christ. That He is the Son of God. He is God the Son. And for a moment, the, the veil is slightly opened as He reveals Himself as the Son of God. This is my Father. And Thomas, after the resurrection, cries out, My Lord and my God to Jesus Christ. The angels in heaven say all glory and dominion, power and honor is yours. You, Jesus Christ, <laughs> Revelation chapter 1, your eyes are like blazing fire. Your voice is like the sound of rushing waters. A thousand Niagara Falls. Your face shines like the sun in all its brilliance. Oh, you are God the Son. A song that I love, that we never sing here. Maybe we will learn it. It's by Graham Kendrick. And the first, the first verse goes like this, about Jesus. Okay, pay attention here. Listen to me. It goes, meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God. Lord of eternity dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. And then the chorus. Oh, what a mystery. Meekness and majesty, bow down and worship. For this is your God. Churches 
do all kinds of things to succeed. I read the journals, okay? Pastors read journals about churches. And they talk about doing demographic studies. Who are the people that you're trying to reach? And they know how much parents want their children to have a good time, so they create Disneyland in their children's ministries. And the really hip pastors sit on a stool and have a bottle of Snapple while they preach. And all these things, these things may be good because they make people feel unthreatened, and that's a good thing. But what do you need? What is the most important thing that distinguishes us from the Rotary Club, from the PTA? Listen, when Moses was at his wit's end in Exodus 33, and the people were restless, and he says, we're supposed to go to the promised land, but will we ever get there? What does he cry out? He says, Lord, unless you teach us, unless you go with us, I'm not going. We're not budging unless you are with us. And you won't get that at the PTA. You won't get it from the National Football League. You won't get it from the National Rifle Association, the Republican Party, or the Democratic Party. You won't get it because you won't get Jesus from them. And what you and I need, what we must have, North Shore Community Church, what must distinguish us is the presence and the word of Jesus Christ. That's us. Isn't that's us? And that's what our neighbors need. Our family, our family members need. We need Jesus. We need his word. I tell you, you say, isn't that obvious? It is not obvious. To many of us, Flannery O'Connor, the great American novelist, in her first great novel, she wrote this book called Wise Blood. And the New Yorker magazine said it was a smashing success, this novel. And in the novel, the main character is a guy named Hazel Motes. Hazel is the grandson of a preacher, and Hazel couldn't stand his grandfather. His grandfather embarrassed him the way his granddad was always preaching about Jesus. Hazel didn't like it, didn't want it, but, but you know what happened? His aunts, Hazel's aunts, they all said, Hazel, one day you're going to be a preacher. Hazel said, never. One day you're going to be a preacher. And you know what happens as the book progresses? Hazel Motes becomes a preacher. And he starts the church of Jesus Christ without Christ. That's the name of the church. The church of Jesus Christ without Christ. And what Flannery O'Connor was doing was she was writing a devastating critique of the church in America. The church in America that was so busy with stuff religious stuff and Jesus was lost in the midst of it all could that happen to us may it never happen to us oh Lord may it never happen to us because it's all about him and they were astonished at what he said 
and who He is. Are you on the cross at that moment? Jesus made it. He who will judge was first judged for you that you may know the forgiveness of sins. He who called God my Father on the cross made it possible for you to be adopted into His family so that you could join Him and say, Our Father. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we thank you for these, your words to us these past 30 weeks. And we love you. And we worship you. And right now, oh, Lord, we present ourselves to you as living sacrifices. For you are worthy of our lives. And I just tell you of my foolishness, my sinfulness, my inadequacy. And my friends here in this room, O oh Lord, we all confess our foolishness, our sinfulness, the propensity to wander. And we join with Peter and we say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And we worship you. For you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.